Welcome back. Episode four of Cast Me to Hell with me, Seb. And me, Robbie. Uh, this, uh, just before we get started, uh, we are going to talk about any recent developments on films that we've talked about in previous episodes. Yeah, particularly we've... kind of last, um, the last episode when we were talking about a lot of the films that were up and coming. Yeah. A lot of, uh, or any, a couple of little mistakes as well that we made last episode yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so uh, to start us off, uh, recent developments, we have uh, Scream 5 casting news. Uh, yeah, and I think um, this actually got released about five days after we recorded. Yeah, I think <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah. So we're kind of, uh, we're jumping in on it. So we've got uh, Jenna Ortega has now been attached to Scream 5. Um, I believe she's 17 years old and she's most famously known for you and Jane the Virgin. And we have uh, Melissa Barrera. Um, she's 30 years old, mainly known for kind of Spanish telenovelas and the up and coming Lin-Manuel Miranda musical film In the Heights. Yeah. So uh, the interesting thing about this casting is uh, a couple of sites have reported that they believe that these two actresses, both uh, both of a Latina back. Uh, both Latina yeah. have uh, been cast, they believe, as sisters, which does match up with the character description we said in episode two about Scream 5. Yeah, so it's looking like it's got to be those. And um, we've also heard kind of um, Selena Gomez <laughs> has been highly hinted at uh, making a possibility of actually returning to the cast. Yeah, this was a big uh, social media kind of pickup from fans, so you can't completely trust no, it. but it would be interesting. the directors and uh, several of the actors already confirmed for Scream 5 have now followed her on Instagram and Twitter. And also uh, Courtney Cox has been said to say... I can't wait to meet you. And they believe that they're going to start filming very soon with Screen 5. So people have kind of put two and two together and assume that she may be part of it. Yeah. Whether that's as a cast, as that's, whether that's a bit of uh, casting for the opening of the film, you know, they yeah, like to sometimes be. get a bigger, but hopefully it's, hopefully that's not it. Hopefully yeah. they're more inspired than just getting <laughs> a big actress to die in the beginning. Yeah. We've been there, done that. We have. And uh, obviously David Arquette has said that he, you know, he'd be on board for having Kirby to come back. So, yeah, yeah, well, we'd very much like her back. Yeah. And then um, we were talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot uh, in our last episode. And yeah. literally the day or two after, maybe even when I went home to record, I think, because, so, yeah. Yeah, I, think I sent you a screenshot um, which said that it's already hit a bump in the road, but it's kind of quickly got back up. Um, so one week into principal photography in Bulgaria, um, which I'm kind of interested <laughs> about. Um, it kind of lost the directors, Ryan and Andy Tohill, um, hired by Fide Alvarez. I, I, that was one mistake I made last episode. I think I was called him Eddie or Eddie. Eddie, yeah, Eddie, uh, Eddie Alvarez, yeah. Yeah, I can't, I can't really write. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like, it was all coming down this one. Yeah, so he was, um, he, was pre he was really praising them. He was really praising them. Um, he thought that they were the perfect director to take over and due to creative differences with the studio, they've left. This is their legendary pictures. Um, apparently, they weren't impressed with what they were seeing. Yeah, um, yeah apparently, they, the film is going to be a direct sequel to the original film, which very much gave us the idea that they've seen that Halloween 2018 yeah. did well and they've jumped on that saying, right, we want a direct sequel. We want to be very much in this style. Uh, well, they tried that with Texas Chainsaw, didn't they? That was a, supposed to be a direct sequel as well. They and have then, done, yeah. yeah. And done then they before. did another reboot, and now they're doing another direct sequel. Yeah. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, they've got an Emmy-winning cinema 
photographer David Blue Garcia has been hired to replace and get straight to set. He will be refilming anything they've shot so far, which means they really had no faith in any of it. Yeah. Um, I believe over there it's also a whole if if a director's done part even a part of the film, they then there's a whole rights credited yeah. issue. So they probably didn't want to give them anything. Uh yeah, so that's it's gonna be interesting. I really hope it's not a case of um they're just trying so hard to make it like the Halloween recent reboot yeah. that it's you know that they're not really thinking about the quality so much as does it look good because he is the uh, Garcia is a yeah he's a cinematographer more yeah. than a director uh, so hopefully it's not just pretty visuals hopefully he has got coming in with at least a good idea of how to make it better than they did because they're following the same scripts so so oh, okay there must have been yeah it's still the same script so it must have been a very big yeah must uh, you know a very big reason and, uh, i don't know maybe they just weren't keeping control of the set or so i don't yeah, know yeah who knows man you know who knows with this um, um and also with that we've uh we've also had confirmation of a possible reboot for urban legends yeah um which will be interested to see how they do that and john carpenter and bloomhouse are rebooting the thing yeah, which, which will be really yeah. interesting. Yeah, we were talking about the the prequel to the thing that they did on the way here, and how yeah. that was, you know, if they're going to do a new one, how are they going to make it different? There's a lot of concepts in there. The concept of the thing itself getting into a different environment could be interesting, yeah. um, because the prequel stayed far too close to the original. Obviously, it had to because it was literally yeah, just before it yeah. happened. But it literally felt like a remake of the film, and just the ending was the only thing that really kind of jumped on. Yeah. It, it wasn't bad, it just didn't feel original in it, any way. It, yeah, really. it felt it. Like a, almost like a straight shot-for-shot shot remake. Yeah. Um, but I got a lot of faith in John Carpenter. So, so yeah, and yeah. then uh, finally, uh, before In Memoriam gets started, <laughs> yeah. we've got In Apology, because... Uh, uh, yeah, this is our first official uh, <laughs> Caspi Tale apology. Yeah, um, because yeah. Uh, we need to... Well, I think I, I was the one that made this mistake here. Uh, I Well, we both forgot Jennifer Love Hewitt, for one. She yeah. is the lead actress... In I Know What You Did Last Summer, and we forgot she existed when we were talking about the main actors, and she literally is the final girl in that film. <laughs> Until after we recorded it, yeah. and we were listening back to the edits, and we're we like, were like, are we sure that, are we sure that uh, Reese Witherspoon was in that film? And we were like, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's no. Jennifer Love Hewitt. I thought that was wrong when I said it. So Also, yeah, to Reese Witherspoon as well for saying that she would star in that film, because it's not really her forte. I mixed it up uh, with Sarah Michelle Gellar also being in I Know What You Did Last Summer. I started thinking of Cruel Intentions, which uh, stars both of them. And it also has Ryan Felipe, who is yeah. in I Know What You Did Last Summer as well. So I was mixing those two <laughs> films together in my head. Uh, yeah, so an apology for that. Yeah, and Please accept our formal apology. Yes, I'm uh, sure they'll be listening. Jennifer Love Hewitt and Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> we, we are your humble servants. <laughs> so on to today's subject. So this is going to be a continuing feature yeah, that we'll do yeah. every once in a while. And it is In Memoriam. And today's subject, In Memoriam, is characters we did not want to die. Yeah, we're going to be pouring one out for these people who's... Uh, on-screen deaths affected us deeply. Yes. A, uh, a couple of rules in case you guys do want to play along at home. Um, only one per franchise. And it has to be, um, they, you know, they have to die within that film. It can be off-screen, but they can't die between films. No, it has to be as part of that film. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it can, it can be off-screen, but it's much more interesting because it's horror films. You prefer to see a death. Yeah, I want to see a death. Although sometimes... One of the worst things about 
some horror films is the fact that you get a character who deserves better because purely they're killed and they don't get the chance to be killed yeah. <laughs> the way you know you expect them to get if they're gonna die they're gonna get some grand death and then it's just like oh no bob's dead yeah <laughs> off screen bob's dead and and these and these so these could be uh deaths whether we think it was the right choice and what they could have brought to the story yeah. it could have been characters that we had uh and an endearing quality or we felt an attachment to yeah it could have been people who had pretty gruesome and kind of undeserved that wasn't deserved yeah we (laughs) thought they'd or the yeah characters even who i think i've even got some who like redeemed themselves in the film enough that when they got it it it's like you expect it to come but i i really kind of wish that they didn't give them that harsh enough because otherwise it doesn't really seem like They've redeemed themselves and now they're getting a just disgustingly just horrible <laughs> death. Yeah. So yeah, we'll definitely be pouring some out for those yeah. boys. We're pouring, pouring some out. Boys and girls. Um, and I've, I mean, I already know, I think two of Seb's. Um, There's one of them, mine, one of them is probably I feel is going to be very obvious. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the most obvious one. So that was uh, a perfect segue. Yeah. Unpracticed as well. My, <laughs> Take it away. Eeps. My first one is... Randy from yeah. Scream Two. I knew he was gonna. It be had to be Randy from Scream Two. He's the only. He's the only character in the horror film that literally like. I could not rewatch that f- part of the film. I at one point I was in Scream so much that literally I hated it so much that scene oh, yeah. that I literally could not like. I would like look away or I would fast forward sometimes because I rewatched the film so many times <laughs> at, when I was younger that I could not take the fact that Randy had just died. I was yeah. like, it literally hit me like. In my stomach. I, I felt it's... that hard. Well, tell us about it for those who might not know. So, uh, Randy in uh, Scream 2, he very much picks us up from the first film that he is still very much our. He is the meta character. Yeah. He is the character telling us everything we need to know about horror films in general or giving us the horror films that, in a way, that viewers are like, go and watch this film and you'll get this, you'll get what I'm talking about. Yeah. Go watch it, go. Um but he's also kind of, I, f- I feel like in the second one, especially in the first one, he's kind of part of that list of, oh, who could it be? But in the second one, he kind of becomes kind of like the heart of the film in a way. Yeah, he, is. he really is that lovable. He's still got that little, he still fancies Sydney in a little way. You can still kind of see that. He's still acting up and playing up. But he is the lighthearted character that really brings you into the film. So his death... Yeah, what a so, death. Uh, yeah, so in his death, it takes place when we have Gail and Dewey. They're out on the front lawn of the college where the second one is set. And Randy picks up the phone and the killer's on the end of the phone. And you have Dewey and Gail start searching around because they're like, he can see us. So they must be somewhere around here. And Randy starts going, talking to him. But Randy starts smack talking, ghost face. Yeah. As soon as he starts doing that, you already get the feeling oh, this isn't going to go well, is it? There's something here that's going to happen. But it is done in such... It, this one almost does yeah. go on unexpected death purely because as he's walking around and he is really... I mean, the, this gets... This actually improves later when you find out who the killer is. Yeah. Because it is Billy Loomis's mother, the fact that literally moments before he dies, he is he's digging right boy. into yeah. Billy and he's Stu, saying how, what, you know pansy ass mama's boys and, things <laughs> yeah. like that. and then he walks past a van yeah. and he, the door opens he from backs behind up against it doesn't he it? does he's yeah. literally standing there and boom ghost face comes out behind him you don't actually get to see it 
on on screen in a yeah. way, but you see the knife going down and the, and you hear him screaming, hear the, yeah. which I think is worse. It's worse than if, like, in a way, because it would have been horrible to see him die, but they probably wouldn't have gone as brutal if they'd shown it on screen because although they had some brutal deaths, they weren't like majorly brutal. Yeah, they were. But what you can imagine is happening to him. He gets stabbed a lot, a lot of times in that moment. And you you kind of just feel the same way that Gail does when they open the door and you hear her fantastic scream, <laughs> queen kind of scream out loud of there, there's yeah. Randy's body. Not looking quite as gruesome as maybe you imagined in your head. Yeah, it's, um, it's he, you know, he's not, you know, gaping wounds or anything like that but it's he is a he's a very beloved character isn't he he is well he yeah he was i think a lot of people reacted to that and a lot of people still question to this day on like horror movies when we're talking about this subject this one came up without me even having to write in scream 2 it was like right there yeah there were whole articles about should randy have died in scream 2 now as much as back in the day i would have said no i wanted to stay around when I looked at the progression from the following films, I do think that his death was what was needed. They needed to kill off a main to raise yeah. the stakes. Yeah, they definitely. It did raise the stakes. It made Scream Two is one of the rare things where I actually think Scream Two is literally almost as good as Scream One. It it works. It's a great sequence. just as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I do think that when he dies, it could have been any other character, but. He had the least, he was kind of the sore thumb sticking out at the same time. Although he was like the heart and he was there telling everyone what's going to, like what yeah. might happen. He was kind of, te he was there giving you that information. But in a way, this was like, he kind of was the audience. And yeah. this was like, the audience is dead now. And he laid now out the killers at the were, first you know. one as well. He lays those rules out about, you know, yeah. don't, you know, don't drink don't have sex, don't say I'll be right back, that kind of stuff. And you're like, oh, this guy knows what to do, yeah. and he dies. And I think for all of the kind of, you know, the big horror fans, he represented them. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, it's yeah. such a well-shot scene and everything about I it. I do think it is that. It is that that you can die too. Like, anyone yeah. is going this time. And it does raise the stakes. Even later on when you see what happens to Dewey and everyone, you're literally like, you after that scene you believe that anyone could die this time and i think that is why he definitely would be my first pick um obviously when i was going through this i did have a little shout out to uh to kirby in my head originally yeah. i thought about putting her on but if i'm talking about the screen franchise randy is that death yeah he is um yeah so let's go on to yours yeah. So I, I'm going to absolutely butcher some names now. <laughs> and I apologize to if we ever have any listeners from South Korea who listen to this. I am going to apologize profusely now. Um, but the first one on my list is from uh, Train to Busan, 2016. Yeah. Um, and it's directed by um, Yeon, Yeon Sung-Hoo. Yeah, again, I'm not, I don't know how to pronounce these names. Um <laughs> And I first watched this film when uh, when my brother Dan came home from, from his travels for Christmas. So it came out in 2016, but I was kind of burnt out on the whole zombies thing. Yeah. And I'm not particularly great with foreign language movies, only because I find that when I read the subtitles... I miss what's happening on screen or I watch <laughs> what's happening on screen and then I miss the concentrate subtitles. Concentrate too hard. <laughs> yeah, concentrate too hard, man. Um, but... My brother was saying, you've got to watch this. You've got to watch this. And I kept saying, yeah, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. He came back and he was like, you know, let's put it on. And it was one, it was a film that I didn't go on my phone for at all. And it, it, it's, it was so much better than it sounded. Um, 
but the film and um, the basic premises is um, a guy called Sukwu um, is escorting his daughter Suan to um, to Busan in Korea, um, and. The character for me, this this film has a lot of good characters, a lot of good deaths. It's it's relatively unpredictable. Um, and the one character that stuck out for me though was uh, Young Guk, um, played by Choi Woo Shik. I yeah again, sorry Choi if I mispronounced your name. <laughs> I, I I'm not good with any of these. Um, but Young Guk is uh, he's he's part of a high school baseball team who were yeah. on this train and they're going to visit this game. And he's um, he has a he has a girlfriend on there called Jin Hee, and kind of the film kind of goes along a very kind of normal as expected thing. Zombies start to take over this train. Yeah. They pull into this station, and then they have to get back on the train. But um, Suk Woo, Young Guk, and um, another character called Sang Aha. They end up getting separated from the main group, and they have they're on opposite sides of the train, okay. and in between them, on the carriages, are full of zombies, and they have to get through. <laughs> and they have some they have a really good mix of dynamics. So, so one part you have they're they're fighting through one of the carriages to get there, and um, Song Ha is like using his fists, and he's really cool. You have um, Suk Wu, who's just like. He's using like riot shields, and then you have Young Guk who's using a baseball bat, and he's like a kid. I think he's supposed to be like fifteen, sixteen, yeah. and his motivation is to get over, uh, get over to Jin Hee and to kind of reunite with her. And so they fight through one carriage. There's another really suspenseful bit where they realize that the zombies' vision's based on movement, so they have to wait until they go under a tunnel and then try and climb around them. It's a really good film. Um, and, but eventually he um, he he meets up with Jin Hee, uh, and the kind of villain of the film, and I use that word, I mean relatively loosely, yeah. is called um, Yon Yon Suk. And just as um, him and Min Hee, um, you know, Young Guk and Min Hee are trying to get out of this window, um, Yon Suk runs in and he throws Jin Hee into a zombie. Jin Hee gets bitten and she's she's <laughs> dying on the floor. And Young Guk just holds her in his arms and he starts crying. And then she turns into a zombie, bites him and kills him. And it's so heartbreaking yeah. because I was he the whole film kind of has these characters that you think is going to survive. You think, oh, they, they're going to make it, they're going to make it. Yeah, and they defies die. expectations. It defies expectations. Yeah. And it, I don't know why, it just really affected me. And I was like, I didn't want him to die. You know, he spent the whole movie trying to get to her. And then he's like, well, she's gone. I accept my fate for it. Yeah. And it was really upsetting. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> we, we mentioned that the, there was a quasi-sequel, but not like an exact yeah. follow-up peninsula coming out. Yeah. Um, but I, I still haven't seen Train to Busan. Watch it. So, I, so well, I definitely will. Well, yeah, we've talked about we need to do an episode where we both give each other a film we haven't seen and then yeah. discuss. So and if anybody's got any, that one yeah, if anybody's got any kind of foreign horrors, let me know because I'm trying to get into them. I'm yeah. trying to break that thing of, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to watch it because it's got subtitles. And yeah. I, you know, I'm trying to break that. So if anybody's got any recommendations... There's a, there's a lot I watched at the university, which now I can't remember. Yeah. And uh, coming to write this this list, I was literally trying to rack my brains for... And in general, I didn't find many that weren't American or, yeah. you know, you know, we talked last week, Western. <laughs> yeah. Like, that were kind of Western, like, so no, I couldn't find many, even though there were probably far more great examples... 
but we both said we kind of hit our minds kind of like when we came up with this task we thought this this must be might be an easy but oh man it does really like yeah. your brain is good so there's just because we've gone for quite a lot like change sounds a great like choice because it yeah. defies that but uh, just because we've uh, chosen certain films, there's so many more, and that's why we've kept this as a feature because yeah. we want to look at more, and hopefully, as we develop more, some of our more foreign like horror yeah, th- films, we'll add some, we'll add some, and we'll be able to talk more in depth about that yeah. because we're a bit, we're we're still lacking in some of that area. Yeah, think. definitely. So that's, you're but growing with, I am growing. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, you know, there's plenty more people to pour one out to. But this is just the first ones that spoke oh, yeah. to us. I had many, many that I had to cut. Sadly. Yeah, and we hope that you will join us for uh, a, a minute silence for each of these characters <laughs> at the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> On to your second one, Sam. Right, my second one is uh, from a film called The Mist, based Ooh, yeah. on a Stephen King adaptation. Um, it is directed by Frank Darabont, who also who has directed several Stephen King adaptations including the Shawshank Redemption oh. and the Green Mile both yeah. great films beautiful uh, he's very good with his Stephen King adaptations um, and this was made in 2008 and this one is well this is a big old spoilers for the end but you shouldn't be watching this <laughs> if you don't want spoilers because it's yeah. about death it's about death um, and it's I've literally written as everyone shot in that car oh man that was this is probably one of the bleakest horror movie endings yeah ever so grim yeah so there's the so the the creatures that come out of the mist uh when we get to the end of the film uh our main characters which are um well our main character is david which is played by mr uh, thomas jane mr thomas jane and uh he is with his his son billy and also to older irene and dan and they all decide to make a run for it they think if they can get to a car that they might be able to get somewhere safe. Um, so as they're driving along, they run out of petrol. They're still in the mist. They can see the mo- monsters in the distance. They've just managed to escape several of those monsters. And after surviving out of so many characters, because there were a lot of characters, most of the film takes place inside of a, a grocery store. Yeah. And I mean, it's a glass a grocery store as well. So, you know, it's not going to last long no. before people start getting picked off. But they've made it this far. They've made it the whole film. And you think, this kind of film, someone's going to have a happy ending. Yeah, you think it's got to have Someone's going to have a happy ending. And I know from the source material, in Stephen King's work, they do have hope at the end of this story. But they don't in, They don't really in this one. Well, there's a bit of hope, but it's not what yeah, you'd be expecting. So they're all sat there in the car. The mist is everywhere, and they can hear something rumbling closer. And David has a gun. And he only has three bullets left in that gun. And he thinks, do I leave them and let everyone get completely ripped apart by monsters? Because the monsters are brutal. They are brutal. Yes, very brutal. And they're not just one kind of thing. You have, they're just nightmare creatures. They're almost Lovecraftian, aren't they? Yeah, Lovecraftian. That kind of tentacle thing which takes away the the stock boy yeah and then you have the bugs and you, and you... there's just so many yeah different styles of creature and each of them kind of kills in their own way which yeah. is something that's really great about the film and it is quite it's an underrated film i don't it's think really too good. many people have seen it they did make a tv series out of it i haven't watched it I watched it, got, a bit. it got cancelled after two seasons i don't think it was nearly as good as the film worked as a standalone i couldn't really see how to make that into more than just a standalone yeah. from that film 
anyway, back to this uh, heartbreaking scene. Um, so he has three. We find out afterwards that he only had three bullets. He decides that he's going to shoot everyone in the car instead of having them go through that nightmare of dying in such a horrible way. Yeah. So he shoots and you go from outside the car and you just see oh, the yeah. bullets and then you, you see him it. turn it to his own head. His son's dead and the two old people in the back are both dead, Dan and Irene. And then he puts it to his head and pulls the trigger and there's no bullets left. Now that's heartbreaking enough. And he kind of sits there for a little while and then accepts his fate and like decides to get out the car and just let them come and rip him apart. And then out of the mist comes a truck and another truck and it's full of people and soldiers as they are taking down all uh, monsters around them are getting yeah. blown to bits. And the mist starts clearing, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh. And he literally stands there, looks at the looks at that, and he sees a woman go by. And a woman at the start of the film who said that she was running to go somewhere else. And they thought, there's no chance he survives. He's gone off into the mist. There's no chance he's going to survive. And you literally see her go by on the truck with her two kids still yeah. together. And then he looks back at the car and realizes he just killed his son. Uh, and starts the, crying, you know, doesn't he? And it's just that that's oh. the end of the film it's so brutal that is it and it's just so everyone in that car you feel horrendous for him even though he's still alive and there is that uh, you know he's got somewhere to go in the future but i don't think he wants no, to go no, man. i think he if he still had if car. the gun still had another bullet he still would have pulled the trigger at yeah, that point he gone, is man. so heartbroken and you feel for him and literally you're just like i mean yeah you know, if you're feeling a bit like down, then don't watch that <laughs> film because there is no hope left in that film. Yeah. Um, and as I said, in the in the original book, at the end, they went off and they have to walk through the mist. And yeah. um, he says to his son on the radio, they hear a word. It just comes up with the word Hartford on the radio. And he just says that to his son. He says, Hartford is hope. Yeah. And then that's the end of the book. So they just leave it with his, he's still alive and it's hopeful. But, this is where Frank Darabont does very good adaptations because he does, in a lot of his films, he has made little tweaks, but they actually work, tend to work. He's the only person I've seen doing adaptation who tends to actually do them that, you know what, that did work better than the original. And I've even Stephen King said yeah. he was impressed by that ending, which he's not always impressed when you play no. with his work. <laughs> no, definitely As we not. know, I... Kubrick's still on his bad list. <laughs> and, uh, and Stephen King is, must be such a hard person to adapt. Yeah, I mean he's he's probably one of my favourite authors, yeah. and I read I read the small you know the short story of the best, but it is it's it must be so hard to adapt his work. Oh, it definitely is. And yeah, so so well yeah. done. Because most of the ones he's adapted are all short. They're all short yeah. stories, which I guess might help that he's got more room to play with it to expand yeah, it, um, instead of say The Shining or It, where you're like you've kind of got you can't yeah. cut too much, <laughs> especially It, man. Or It, that's like well, a it, thousand pages. Yeah. <laughs> But then we're talking about changes to adaptation. I mean, there are some cuts with Stephen King where you're like, yeah, you really you can't do that. Like the orgy scene in yeah. it with the children coming of <laughs> it. You know, I get it symbolic in the book, but if you did that on the screen, the yeah. director would be going to jail. <laughs> yeah, you ain't get you get away with that, man. Right. That, I think that was probably um, that's probably coked up Stephen King era, wasn't it? Yeah, maybe? yeah, that know. was daydreams and going off in crazy. <laughs> Yellow man yeah. custard <laughs> yeah. from a dead dog's eye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, my number two. Um, my number two is from Fright Night in 1985. Um, and this was actually the directorial debut of Tom Holland, who um, who wrote Psycho 2, the adaption. Yeah. Um, well, the, the sequel. Um, and he wrote Child's Play as well. 
not to be confused with Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Yeah, no, yeah definitely <laughs> not. He is, Tom Holland is not a time traveller, as far yeah. as we are aware. Um, and here's something else that I actually found out quite interesting. So the music for this is done by uh, Brad Fidel, who did the Terminator theme. Oh, which yeah. is why, I mean, that's why the, the music and the soundtrack for, for Friday really Night yeah. so good. <laughs> and that Terminator theme is like amazing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My dream is just to, is to make love to Ariana Grande whilst under a bridge whilst the Terminator theme plays. <laughs> 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 Basically like a modern day uh, Kyle Reese, if you would. And... <laughs> I don't want to imagine, I don't want to imagine that because I'm looking right into your eyes right now and uh, yeah, you I, I can't deal with that right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a nice image, but I would release it to the world. Uh, and the character for me is Evil Ed Thompson, played by uh, Stephen Jeffries, who I believe he played a, a couple of other kind of teen, you know, teen horrors and that kind of stuff. Yeah. The thing that gets me about this, have you seen Fright Night? I have seen Fright Night a very long time ago. Yeah. I've also seen the remake as well. So I kind of know the story, yeah. but I, yeah, it, it's, it's all... It's, yeah distant in my brain it's distant but the you know the basic premises of it is a guy called charlie brewster um he believes that a vampire has moved into him next door um, and he's trying to figure out that whole thing and the film itself is i think it's just a great play on kind of 80s horror with a little bit of comedy in there yeah it's not over the top gory but it's it's it has great effects and it looks kind of good it does have a lot of good dark yeah. humor dark yeah. humor Great sound soundtrack, really good actors in it. So you know, like Chris Sarandon plays uh, Jerry Danbridge, mm. who and he's just so great, and so suave as a vampire. Yeah. He's got that long like grey coat and a red scarf, <laughs> and, and there's and it's like strangely erotic in some scenes. Yeah, like only the eighties could kind of get away with. Um, but Ed Thompson, or Evil, as he's kind of uh, known in the film, he's Charlie Brewster, the main character's kind of best friend. Yeah, he's a very He's a very strange character, you know. He reminds me of that one kid that we went that you went to school with, who kind of made fun of people and that kind of stuff. But it's really insecure and actually a bit bullied himself. Yeah. And he's very strange. He hates the name Evil, for instance, <laughs> even though he has like a really high pitched grating voice and a really like annoying grating laugh, which just kind of endures you to him. Um, but he's a he's a sympathetic character. Um, I always saw him as a sympathetic character. And there's a bit, probably about halfway, two-thirds of the way through the film, where they're on to Jerry Danbridge and they're trying to recruit, um, you know, Peter Vincent, the the, vamp the kind of like vampire hunter yeah. on TV into, into it. And um, Jerry Danbridge follows evil. And he, he doesn't, like, chase him. He kind of stalks him down into this alley. And you have some great visual shots of this, like, alley... And it's quite like dark, but then you have that really good like fog. The fog, yeah. Fog I, I can imagine. The, yeah, I can imagine the scene in my head. Yeah. And he kind of, you know, he turns him into a vampire, but he doesn't do it in a brutal way. He kind of looks at him and he comes out of up behind him and he says stuff to him like, you know, you don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be afraid of me. They're not going to bully you anymore. Yeah. They won't make fun of you anymore. He talks that him into it. Yeah. And he talks him into it. And he just goes into his coat. Very manipulative. Very manipulative. And then there's some, you know great bits in there like evil goes to try and kill peter vincent and he kind of bangs on the door and he's like you know there's a vampire out here there's a vampire come on and obviously vampires have to be let into a house yeah so peter vincent lets him in and he's pretending to be like a human and then he shows himself to be a vampire 
and Peter Vincent burns him with the crucifix, and he gets like a massive like wound on his on his forehead, and yeah. he's cr- and he starts <laughs> crying like a child. Yeah, it's... it's so hot. It's so yeah. like. It's just upsetting because yeah. he is just like, he's just a kid. He is just a He's kid. just been manipulated into it. Yeah. And he starts saying, you know, the master's going to kill you. And he's like, slowly, oh, so slowly, <laughs> like that, whilst he's crying. And it's really kind of, I don't know, I find really it upsetting. drawn in. It's almost like he's been brought into like a cult. In yeah. It, you know, he's really has been brainwashed in that way. And he yeah. thinks this is like the right thing. Yeah. And he, and when, you know, just before his death scene, uh, where Peter Vincent go, goes to Charlie Brewster's house and he sees a woman in bed with like, you know, long hair and asleep and he tries to wake him up and it turns out to be Evil Ed. <laughs> he's got like a bright red wig on and he's like, you know, Char- Charlie's mum's not here anymore. She's working late. And then he says like she left him a note and he gets out a note and says, your din- you know, your dinner's in the oven. And then he says like, sounds delicious, attacks him and he turns into a wolf. Um... And, you know, he jumps at Peter Vincent going to kill him. Peter Vincent gets, I think he gets like a chair leg or a table leg. Mm. And he accidentally impales evil. And it goes through his chest and he falls down the balcony. And, I'm, you know, I, I timed it. And I think it takes him like two and a half minutes to die. You know, he's slowly turning into into a human again from this wolf. That pain, yeah. And, it, and he's screaming. And then there's a bit where he kind of like, he reaches out to Peter Vincent. When he's turned back and he just dies and then you look at Peter Vincent's face and he realises that, you know, Evil Ed, whilst he was turned into a vampire and whilst he was this like evil thing of the night, he's still a child. Yeah. And it's it's just, yeah, it's just quite upsetting. Mm. And I don't know why that one always stuck with me. Yeah. It's quite long. It's quite longed out as well. Yeah. Which is, yeah, even worse. That, yeah. You know, when they die quickly, it's like, okay, like that was hard, but it's not, but he really suffers. He suffers, yeah. yeah. He's slowly turning back, man. But number three from you, my man. Number three. Right. Uh, we're hitting on uh, Halloween. Oh, I think I know who this is going to be. Uh, oh, I don't know. Halloween 5, The oh, Revenge no. of Michael Myers. Nope. Oh. Uh, 1989 and. I am about to butcher someone else's name because the director, who I don't think highly of, <laughs> um, Dominique Offenin Girard. <laughs> I, I yeah. can't tell you anything else about him. I looked at his films and was like, I, I, I don't know any of these films. I don't know if anyone would know these films. <laughs> uh, but then he was directing Halloween 5, which by that, you know, it's not the, it's not exactly top barrel. It's not, but um, it, it's not quite but, Halloween 6. <laughs> or Resurrection. Not quite, yeah. Um... But the character is Rachel Carruthers, and uh, she is uh, the J- she is the one looking after Jamie Lloyd in Halloween Four. She is oh the, yeah yeah you know a blonde. If to, to kind of remind you, she she was a pretty kick ass. She was kind of the final girl of that film because obviously Jamie was, but also she was because she played a big part in yeah. defeating getting rid of Michael Myers in the fourth one. And to me, the fourth one is one of the best sequels. Yeah, the fourth one's really um, good. I remember. And uh, this is part of why this death is, I find this kind of, it's almost more, it's not so much that it like broke my heart or made me feel really, it was the fact that there was so much potential with this character and they just wasted it. Because um, just to recap the end of Halloween 4, you have that amazing moment where Jamie comes down and yeah. it looks like she's... Uh, she's in exactly like Michael. She's yeah. in the, she's in the clown costume. She's got the knife and she's covered in blood. And you think, what's happened here? Something's got inside of her head, or does it run? Is is this running in the family? 
you know, it might seem a bit strange, but it's played so well. And the fourth one works really well. It has got a little bit of a Halloween 2 style to it, where it's kind of like you're in lots of, like, I know they're in the hospital, but it reminds me of that where you've got, in that one you had Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode, and you had the uh, the the dry the driver of the ambulance, and you had lots of like characters like friends and stuff. Right? Yeah. And this one had a lot of friends and a lot of family, and there was lots of places for Michael to go and stalk. And then we go to the fifth one, and literally right at the near right near the beginning of the film, Rachel is coming out of the shower, of course. Nah, as <laughs> and then are. she goes to put on the clothes, and you can literally Michael is you you just see a hand that's on. The railing and he's in the closet as he he loves to be in the closet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he is. <laughs> and you hear the breathing, but she doesn't notice him, even though it, it seems like you would. <laughs> yeah, you hear somebody His hand is right there that. on the road. <laughs> um, but she picks out clothes and she gets dressed. There is no nudity. Um but it he suddenly just comes out, she looks at a picture, he comes out, strikes her, and he strikes her he strikes her in the shoulder. And you don't see so you don't and that's it. That's all you see. Except then you see Jamie wake up in the hospital and she's screaming as if she Has knows what's happened. Yeah. Um, the reason that this is so annoying is because she was so good in the last film to just kill her off in the opening minutes. And not only that, they didn't even give her a good death. She doesn't even get it. Like, it's, the idea is that Michael is searching for her and he's found, he's yeah. found Rachel so that he can go for it. That's fine. Makes sense. But... I just think she would have worked well, and it, it's this is one of many problems with that sequel that it doesn't use any of the potential given to them in the fourth film for ideas. It just scraps all of it, kind of thing. Jamie's just in a mental institu- institution, but even that's played out very quickly. It's just all around a very disappointing kind of film. And um, Rachel, as a character, I just think could have done so much more. Yes, it, and. Uh... Yeah, from what I remember, it's that kind of, it's a bit like wasted potential. She's so she's so good in the yeah in that one, and then she kind of dies. I felt the same with um, I think it's Paxton in Hostel and Hostel Two. Yeah, you know, so so well done in the first one, and then, and then like, just dies in like, the start. Yeah, they do it in quite. A lot. I think I remember like Saw and stuff did a lot of these quick offs, and you know th- yeah. those kind of. Um, but I do think, and and the actress herself. Um, Ellie Cornell is her name, and she was really disappointed, obviously, to find out that yeah. that was going to be her role in Probably the next film. Be. And she fought quite hard because all she was given was this short; it it barely lasts two minutes. This that scene, and in the original script, it said that she got that thing and she was full frontal naked. This is already gives you an idea of what the kind of director, because he was he wrote it as well. So this is the kind of director yeah. he is. He just wants it to be all about that. Whereas Halloween hasn't really played that up too much. It did in the first one. It has moments, but I wouldn't say it's one of the main, like, worst contenders for no. flashing body body parts, you know, and, <laughs> well, in that kind of way. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, she was going to get out of the chat and it just, it cuts there. And she fought very hard to be like, you're not doing that. Yeah, that, That's not happening. Tense. And then she was also going to get killed in a very oddly phallic kind of horrific way where he has a pair of scissors that he picked up, which is what he stabs her with in yeah. the shoulder. Originally he was going to shove those down her throat for a few, like it was going to be a minute long, se- like almost a minute long sequence. Yeah. That's weird. Um, <laughs> that's really weird. Yeah. Of him just basically making her gag and, cutting over which which i guess sounds like a more interesting death but which, she didn't want any like she just thought that that was just poor writing like yeah 
and it, it just is. So this is mine. Um, because a shout out um to Daniel Harris who plays Jamie Lloyd. Yeah, love Daniel. Um, Harris. because she was my other choice, but not for in these films. Although her character does get a crap death in Curse of Michael Myers, the yeah. next one, a really quick like. Very out, out of place. Um, but Daniel Harris in Halloween 2 in Rob Zombie's That's remake. That's who I thought you would have had. Yeah, I, thought, well, I originally thought about that, but I decided it wasn't really wasted potential and... That's another film where I thought there was a lot of wasted potential in yeah, general anyway. But but Annie, well, but hers Daniel was like an, Annie, yeah, hers really was like good. an unexpected death, which I uh, may, may come up again Possibly. later. Maybe. There's a couple of spoilers just in case you do remember. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, back over to you, Bobby. So, my number three um, is from, you know, what is known as the first summer blockbuster. is Jaws, 1975, directed by uh, Steven Spielberg. Interesting. And, yeah. Well, I've, I've thought about this one a lot because I remember watching this film when I was young and this guy was such a cool character. I think he had to die, um, but I think he, as, as a character himself, is great. I'm waiting for you to say the name because I have the exact, I have one on my list as well. Uh-oh. For yours. <laughs> this may be the same yeah. character. Quint. Quint. Yes. Quint oh, too. look at that. <laughs> <laughs> we are both. We there both. we go. We, we thought about that we may have a crossover we at some did. point. So. And it's good because we don't tell each other and what our And it is my next one be. as well. So Boom, joining beautiful. our number four together. <laughs> that was not planned. But you you go. <laughs> yeah. So um, so for me, um, I think Robert Shaw plays Quint amazing. Oh, it's, it's a fantastic yeah. performance. And I know that he... Did he he did a lot of stage stuff before? Um, yeah. but apparently, he did really well in kind of like a Shakespearean play, which kind of launched him or did it. He, he was a very uh, yeah. He was a very like I, I Steven Spielberg said that it was a big get that they yeah. managed to get him for this role, especially for the fact that he does almost like one scene that's almost like a soliloquy in its own way, talking about Shakespeare. Yeah. And, and that's it. That's the next bit is, you know, the, the, the USS Indianapolis speech. Yeah. Um, I think it really fleshes out his backstory. I, you know, when he comes in, that first scene where when he comes in and they're all kind of having a meeting and they're talking about, we're going to get this shark. And he's like, $20,000. You, yeah. you get the tail, you get the head, <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, that sounded nothing like him. <laughs> but no, he just, like, when you first see him, he comes across as a bit of a, who's, who's this asshole? <laughs> who's he this he is a bit of an asshole, but he's that he lovable is. asshole. He, he, this is the good thing. He, once they're on the boat, he really develops yeah. as a character, and 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 I think you know he has a lot of back and forth with um with Hooper, you know Richard Dreyfus, yeah Richard Dreyfus, and um which is uh, a great part. It's great, like together, like together, those yeah. two, work, they have great chemistry, bit like hating each other, which I think well, is yeah. real. When I read <laughs> that, it was um was offset. It, they were lovely and they got on really well together and he said Robert Shaw was absolutely amazing was yeah. a lovely guy but he said as soon as they got on set in character not just in character like Rob, yeah. Robert oh. Shaw started giving him a really hard time yeah like he, he tried to make him have a drink so he was like you know have this shot of like I don't think it's apricot brandy because I, I know that's what yeah. he drinks that's what Quint drinks but he <laughs> tries to make him have this shot he tries to make him have this drink and Richard Dreyfus obviously was starting to come up as an actor um, and he chucked it over the he chucked it over the ship. We chucked it away in front of everyone, and everyone was like, "Oh God, you don't do that to Robert Shaw." And then there's a scene where um, where Hooper's on the back of the boat and he's doing something, and the water starts splashing up. Apparently, Robert Shaw's behind there with a fire hose <laughs> spraying him, <laughs> and they had this really kind of intense like professional rivalry 
yeah. and it does it plays off in the characters i think it was it, i think robert shaw was a very method actor yeah and he very much wanted to be in that character if this guy's gonna be a jerk then i'm gonna make sure i get i get it out of, out of richard dreyfus i'm gonna get this performance out yeah. of him because even though richard dreyfus doesn't look it Oddly enough, he looks quite old when he's actually got very young. Yeah, he does. He the, looks like he's, yeah, in his he's 40s. actually quite young. But yeah, he's he like really 20s, does. Isn't he? Yeah. yeah, he's in his twenties. And but, Robert Shaw was a much more experienced actor, and I think he did it on purpose to get that out of him. And I don't think St- Spielberg didn't stop anything like that. Not because Robert Shaw was a drama crew or a, yeah. like, a hard to work with, but because it got the best. It, and they used to do it with like Stan- Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock, who were very much inspired. You know, some of the style, especially yeah. Hitchcock. He, they both used to treat their actors like absolute crap to get the performance out of them they yeah. wanted. Stuff you probably wouldn't get away with now. <laughs> Definitely not. No, um, no. And I think even though Steel's, Steven Spielberg wasn't the, like, the culprit behind that, he was very much... If, let it, it go. Let, Just do it. Do it. Do yeah. it. Like, it's working. It's working. <laughs> it's good on screen. Because those yeah. moments really, those moments between them and those moments of them like going from being real right, like feeling like rivals and then you get that... The, USS when they're drinking as well. when they're drinking and then they're just getting along and it's such a fun like but natural scene you it really is. believe that these characters that are just, just suddenly getting along and it's it's the fact that you know quid versus hooper has a very traditional versus modern aspect so yeah. you know quint is all is traditional fishing and it's traditional shark hunting and is that kind of stuff whereas hooper comes from that whole he's from like an oceanographic yeah, school it's, it's modern day high modern tech day, high tech you know even like a shark cage he's and that was like a big thing back then he's like yeah. i've got this shark cage from the institute yeah. and it's like and it's and it's there's also such the class differences between them you know he calls quint like i'm not stick, putting up with this working class hero bullshit and that kind of stuff and then when he gives that USS, you know, Indianapolis speech, and it really fleshes out his backstory, you know, he's off to to drop on a on a off off the record mission to kind of drop the bomb off. There's no distress signal, you know. There's that kind of stuff. It it makes you feel that that is partly why Quint doesn't kind of trust people, yeah. And he has a distrust of of the ocean and that kind of stuff. And I think it it has a, an element of foreboding about his death. Because, oh, you definitely. know, he's saying the shark's coming to pick him off and the screams and that kind of stuff. Yeah, you can see that it that's that's what really works um, later on. Like, I mean, as you said, you see this brash character turn to, like, you see this kind of, not softer side, but, but you out. see where it's come from. Yeah. It's deeply embedded in him. And using that real-life event as part of his story with the death that he gets... Oh, it yeah. really does make it more impactful because you see in that moment, you can see the fear in his eyes of that, that that literally keeps him up at night. Yeah. That thought, that screaming, seeing bodies half eaten, just floating around, thinking your buddies are still alive. Yeah. And, oh, they're dead. He's, he, was, he was asleep for a day or something like that. Yeah. They knock him and he's dead. That yeah. Kind of that kind of, and you I don't think, see anything, but just the description, the hearing description it works you there. How passionate Robert Shaw is in that moment. Yeah. Um, it really does. It shows you that that kind of death is his worst fear. Yeah. That is the death of any death he would choose. That is the one he does not want to come to him. And that's what happens. Do you want to tell him about the yeah. death? I'm al- I always forget if Hooper dies. He does, doesn't he? No, he doesn't, doesn't die. He? No. Because he dies, I think... He he dis he's in the he's, he's in so the cage. Hooper's in the shark because I only watched this recently, yeah. which by the way is what got it on this list because it made me remember how literally this is, it's such an amazing film and I so I good. forgot I got so used to the idea I know how that film plays out but the suspense still works to this day yeah. as well even though you've seen it you're still like 
I know what's going to happen, but shit, I, but I am why? really. I mean, partially due to John Williams' amazing score, beautiful score. Um, but Hooper is inside the cage. They're trying to get. Uh, he's got the uh, syringe, and they're trying yeah. to get it into the shark. Um, it doesn't work very well. It doesn't last very long. It literally the shark just starts bashing Tears the hell out the cage, of it. Doesn't it? Um, you see the it, the cage in pieces, and you kind of assume he's dead because literally you see the shark following him down, and he's yeah. disappearing down to the bottom of the ocean, and he he's there just just kind of hiding in a rock. Uh, but it looks like the shark's still going to get him, and yeah. you kind of get what looks like blood at one point, and you think That's he must him. be dead, and yeah. you don't see him again until literally the end of the film. He rises back out of the water. He was just hiding down there the whole time. <laughs> he was just leaving them to it. You Imagine know just I mean? hiding from Not a shark. Not that there's much like he could do minutes. by that point because yeah. he literally probably thought you're all dead. You're, yeah. Like you're you're screwed. Like there's no way you're getting out of this because it is a that 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 whole when the shark blows up, it is literally it's a one in a million shot. That, it, is, that is yeah. what it is. That's still. Like it's still, I still laugh at that. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> just the thought of a man smile, you son of a bitch, bit, oh. <laughs> blows it out. That still yeah. creases me up. It's not like Michael Caine when he shoots it in like the fourth one. Yeah. There's no explosions in it. it. Just it's just one bullet blows a shark out. Oh god, yeah. The, the Michael Caine, it, as he as he quoted for that film, it's so bad that he quoted it saying, um, "It's uh, I've never seen the film, but you should see the beautiful house it built." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I, back yeah. to Quid's death. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking because the, the the one thing about the US Indianapolis speech is he mentions about not having a life jacket. Yeah. And that is the one bit where they, they missed out for me because his death in the film, um, you know, the the ship is getting destroyed. It's getting attacked by the shark. It's I would say it's getting, getting attacked by Jaws the shark. Apart from the back. It's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they are yeah. sinking. Yeah, and, it, and it, yeah, they're sinking. And... Quint is holding on, you know, he's holding on. And then one of the um one of the air canisters yeah. falls on his hand, doesn't it? And he and he drops. Which was shown earlier on in the film as yeah. well because it does uh, it falls over, the, doesn't it? It falls over and they just kind of put it back up. Like, yeah, yeah that'll be fine. <laughs> and he falls down slowly and he falls down into the shark's mouth. Yeah, it's weird. He slips, but it does seem quite it's slow. slow isn't isn't it? It? <laughs> Do you remember when we watched Not Giant Shark versus we, years ago, like when we were about fifteen, sixteen, we watched um, a film called Giant Shark versus Mega Octopus. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and there was a, yeah, there was a scene where maybe the giant shark or the mega shark or the giant octopus is is breaching towards like a, a, a war vessel, and there was a character we called Screaming Nomad uh, yeah. <laughs> because there's literally about seven shots where it's this shark flying at this boat and then this man just going no <laughs> shot off the shark and then no screaming no man and it's it's it feels it's not that bad but it's very slow isn't it he's slowly going into them yeah and then when it gets his jaws on it you hear this crunch which is just so beautifully edited and then you have the crunching and the screaming the blood blood bursts, bursts out, out of his, his mouth. mouth and then as soon as the shark goes back into the water you just have silence. Yeah. And it's so and daunting. It's like, although you do get some good shots by that point in the film, this is probably the best shot of the shark you get. But because it's such an intense... And, yeah. And like that, the shark didn't work at that point. It was it had to be someone inside really? of the shark. Yeah, doing that. They had to, they had people inside Fuck, to move it. Because it was another of those shots where it wasn't... That's what made Jaws such yeah. a great film. I knew because, it was on and off very lot. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, that's what made Jaws like, so impressive was just by chance otherwise 
the shot was meant to be shown way more, which yeah. would not have made it the classic it is because it is all about that suspense and the fact that they had to come up with all these different ways to show, yeah. you know, like the barrels on the water oh, kind I of movement. Yeah. They had to come up with those ways because they didn't have a shark to show. Um, but yeah, that uh, adds it, to the it actually had people inside maneuver because the it still wasn't working, even Fuck. though it looks flawless. But also, his death is so impressive and so like kind of brutal. It does take you away from how imper- like like possibly imperfect you might be able to look at the shark. So it even yeah. holds up today because your eyes are not really on the shark. You'd think it would be after getting yeah. a really good shot. But you are fully on this character. You even are. to the moment he is gone, you are like... Wow, like, and, but the one thing for me is I I don't know whether that's worse or in the book his death. Okay, I haven't I haven't read this. This is what what got me thinking. So I, I saw the film when I was young. I borrowed the the book from my dad. Um, it's still the same copy he got. You know when it came out. Yeah, and even the cover of the book is is pretty much the same. But the the shark's a little bit smaller, obviously. Yeah, and I think in in the book it has a lot. There's a lot more happening. So I think Hooper is having an affair with um, Chief Brody's wife and their old friends or something like that. There's, you know, there's a couple not of the, themes. Not the Spielberg family friendly. <laughs> no, uh, not the, yeah. no, definitely not. But in, in, the, in the book, uh, what happens with Quint is you, he gets a rope stuck around his leg and okay. the rope is tied into the shark with the barrel on. Okay. And he, I think he, you know, in the Indianapolis speech, he says after that, he'll never wear a life jacket again with and then what happens is the shark um go, submerges back down and he gets dragged under the water and his uh, body stays with the shark for the rest of the, for the rest of the book and there's uh, a scene where yeah. brody because it's all from brody's kind of viewpoint there's a scene where he says he's he's looking down into the water he sees the shark going and then, you know, a couple of meters behind it, he sees Quint's body, lifeless yeah. body. And I've, I've only read this book once when I was about 15, 14, 15. And that that description has stuck with me ever since. That, no, that is, yeah. it, it does make you, I wonder whether they would have tried something like that if they could show the shark more. Because you almost need to show the, sh- you know, yeah, you need apart to from just having the barrels and his body, I feel like that would look very weird with just the barrels floating around the top and <laughs> yeah. his body just there as well. Like. <laughs> yeah, and you need to be able to hold your breath for like, yeah. <laughs> like, a, like a long time. <laughs> but yeah, it does still fulfill that whole bit in, because he goes, out of all of the people he talks about, it is the one where he says that they were literally just bitten in half, kind of, you know, yeah. in that. Yeah, but so such a beautifully um, done scene. It is, and on to your number four, man. Yeah, unless you got anything else to add for Quint. No, no. So my number four is from a werewolf in London. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, nineteen eighty-one, John Landis. I was actually gonna do think of doing one of these guys as well. <laughs> <laughs> if if it's the same character, I was thinking of doing them, but I haven't. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, there's not. Well, well, there were in in this film there were two main characters that you would consider. Yeah. Uh, but I did go for the protagonist, so I oh, went for David okay. Kessler, uh, who was played by David Norton. Just to remind you a little bit of a werewolf in London, an absolute classic. Beautiful. Two, let's just say, two best friends <laughs> <laughs> are walking on the moors in uh, is it Yorkshire, the Yorkshire moors? I can't remember. Yeah, I just no. remember the, in the, the back of my head. That's the only thing that's blanking on my mind. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, they are attacked by some kind of beast. His uh, best friend is mauled hor- horrifically, and he gets and he gets well scratch bitten, just a just a bit, but not majorly. Yeah. After going through some very weird villages and pubs where people are like, oh, "You shouldn't be." They're such good scenes, pubs. you know. 
And, yeah. the, and, and the funny thing, because obviously when, you know, when my grandparents were alive, yeah. they lived, um, they lived in Devon and they got the moors on Devon and they have some little pubs like that. And I always remember going into them when I was young. <laughs> they kind of always had that little vibe, you know. It wasn't quite to the extent of, like, you walk in and everybody stops looking at you. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, but still, you get that kind of, like, in a lot of, like, small villages or even, like, very local where you mainly get all the locals in, you know. <laughs> yeah. We're the locals. <laughs> you do sometimes feel that way. You feel a bit like, you know what, this pub isn't for me because I'm literally <laughs> walking in and it's all the locals just being like, no one's been in here in 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> really Royston, Royston Vasey, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so as the film plays out, he um, begins to transform more and more into this werewolf. And he also does uh, see his friend again, Jack Goodman. That's who I would have, who I was going to put. Yeah, this is kind of a bit, I guess I've kind of, I may have mashed a little bit of both here because there is till that. They're both are very tragic characters. And both very likeable as well. Yeah, they are. Jack Goodman, especially, who's played by Griffin Dunn, um, he really adds a good dark humour to the film. Yeah. And the whole sequence does. Uh, Rick Baker is the person who did the special effects yeah. for An American Werewolf in London. And uh, I found out that actually uh, this was the first film to win Best Makeup at the Academy really? Awards. Uh, the year before they had had, in 1980, they had The Elephant Man. And there was a huge backlash to the fact a film like The Elephant Man, which had like these amazing prosthetics, and like, how can a film like that not yeah. get, you know, an award for like the special effects or the makeup because that's how much work? And it so was, next year they introduced it. It's and a true art form. This film it? got it. I mean, just the werewolf transformation sequence, which is brutal, but for a film back then to give you such a, I mean, the only film I can think of that is possibly to its level is The Thing. Yeah. The way that that. You see the hands transforming oh, the and, and the, the, the nose. You know, I've seen this transformation done in CGI and it has never worked as well as yeah. it does in that practical thing Beautiful. where you really do feel his pain. David Kessler oh. is screaming in pain and every time it happens to him, and, and that's part of what makes him uh, even a tragic character is he doesn't want this to happen to him. No. And the, the whole film, he's trying to work out how can he get away from this? How can he survive it? And when he sees Jack Goodman, there's a classic scene inside of a, a movie theater. That is amazing. You know, and each time you see Jack Goodman, because he's one of the dead that has been killed and they can't move on yeah. until, until the original werewolf is killed or, you know, the main werewolf or the person who is now the holder of that werewolf yeah. mantle, they can't move on. Which is why Jack Goodman is kind of as that dark humor. It's very much like you need to kill yourself. Yeah, like and die, and, and we can be free. Each scene he gets worse. Each time this? he is that like more and more of his flesh and skin Rot is rotted and he away. Looks amazing. He does it, the whole thing. It just were even when he's down to the point when he is just like a puppet that they're using to yeah. be the character. You still because of the way you've seen it break down in each part, you still are looking at that character going. That's an actor. I, that's still yeah. that's still an actor. I still believe that's an actor, even though it is now a puppet. And you and it's the same with the whole movie theater full of all of the victims who yeah. are still just falling apart. I love that film. So. With the help of he he starts living in London with a nurse uh, nurse Alex. Yeah. Obviously, they form a relationship, and it's also their emotional bond that plays a big part in his in the final death at the end. And this is literally right at the end of the film. Yeah. So the werewolf goes in like a. A killing, like he's fully formed by that point, and he just go, ends up on a spree. And no matter how much he wants to avoid it, throughout London, you have the classical bobbies who are yeah. <laughs> with their like hats on, and yeah, the who are, like chasing after him, and they have absolutely no idea what to do. Yeah, um, you, imagine if like you were just on the police and, a, and there was a werewolf, yeah, just tearing people apart. You're just, what the hell? There's, yeah, there's no protocol for that. You can't um, beat yeah. it with your truncheon. 
yeah. And yeah, that whole ending, yeah, so that's really it's just like a weird scenario. <laughs> uh, but that whole end sequence is is fantastic with the werewolf killing all different kinds and quite a lot of, you have quite a lot of point of view shots as yeah. well. Um probably to save on the special effects because you know this was yeah. all practical apparently um I, I was watching something about this the other day um okay. because it came out this the same year as the howling yeah both 1981 which we've you know we've got to watch we do um <laughs> and apparently a lot of it was me- mechanical as well yeah so when yeah. they did the face it's like a mechanic and that yeah you yeah. do you just see the way that moves um <laughs> and i think like you said a little bit earlier, it's it's so drawn out and it feels so painless. And that doesn't feel like, you know, when you watch a modern day werewolf film, yeah. um, when they do it with CGI especially, but th- those transformations seem really quick. Yeah, they don't see no, they don't see they you don't know? long them out. They don't take their time. They just because move, they're because they? they're sieging see like CG-ing. special effects. Sieging <laughs> sieging everything. Uh-huh. Using CGI to create every little part. They don't take the time to be like, oh, we'd like this really long, this torturous yeah. sequence. Because um, it's a curse, isn't it? Yeah. The whole idea of a werewolf is it's it's not really like a glamorous thing. You know, vampires yeah. are like, vampires are glamorous, vampires are sexy, that kind yeah. of thing. Werewolves, you're cursed. Yeah. You, don't, you don't want to turn into a wolf and kill people. Yeah, and this like the the good thing about where an American werewolf in London is that it it plays on the tropes that have been around since the Wolfman, like yeah. it's, it's you know a thousand classic tales and things like that, and several movies had already been made, but this is the first one that kind of take it with that. It's dark and it's brutal, but it's also funny. Yeah, and has an amazing soundtrack again. Um, so good. Yeah, so good. Do you remember? Um, I always remember what when I was young. I think before I watched an American Werewolf in London, I think I watched an American Werewolf in Paris. I did see that as well. Yeah, I never, I never seemed to remember it. I just remember a scene where someone's shagging, and I think it's a woman who turns into a wolf. Yeah, and a man's locked in a cage. That or one becomes like, that. like a cult. Um, yeah, I don't remember. I, I think I, I've I, I've seen it when I was very young, but I do remember some parts because there's a there's a brutal part inside of. Well, there's two. There's one in a subway and one in a church. Yeah. I think a lot of the cult stays inside of the, the church. Um, it's, I mean, it's probably why I didn't watch American Werewolf in London because I saw that one first and thought the quality is, uh, it's not that great. I don't really remember you know? that much. So if you then went in, if you see that one first and then the other one, you're going to think, oh, well, if that one wasn't good, the, the, yeah. it's, it's stupid thinking to think <laughs> the original one will be crap because the sequel was yeah, crap. Yeah, it's crap. Because the sequels are always better than yeah. the original. <laughs> but, um, such a good film. Beautiful. Yeah. And American Werewolf in London. Such a good film. American Werewolf in Paris. <laughs> well, I, well, I'll have to revisit it, but I would say, if I remember correctly, not so great. No. Um, let's Anyway, the death. So... Finally, the we- the werewolf gets cornered in an alley, and the police go around it. And uh, Nurse Alex get is on the scene, and the police have no other option just to blast the hell out of him. Yeah. Even though it felt like David felt at that point just before he transformed that he was so close yeah. to thinking that he'd found a way out of this, um, uh, but at the same time he was, you know, mainly quite hopeless at the same time. And the police shoot him dead there in that alley, and you have Nurse Alex, who again I think I think they build up quite. Not all not all horror films really have a great like relationships built up. Yeah, not where, you know they're not great at them. You know they're very superficial. They're not, but they do really build a connection in a weird kind of way, not your natural kind of way. 
even though it is a bit weird for a nurse to be like, I'm gonna, you can come and stay at my house, and you can, you know, and yeah, it's got the whole Florence thing. Nightingale syndrome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as she's like screaming and sobbing over his dead body, you just all of that from the film, not even just that, but with like Jack, I guess there's a bit of a freedom there, but you just all of those moments kind of build up to kind of like you. These characters didn't deserve anything. It's like a this. bit. Tr- it's tragic, isn't it? You know, it? it is just a completely tragic ending. There's no. There's no good side to this. The only yeah. is is that you believe that now that he's dead, that Evers may be released for anyone he's killed will be released from that. Yeah. You know, that curse. But you're still. It's bittersweet, you know, isn't it? Really it really is because it doesn't seem. I mean, I haven't watched it for a while. I'm um, have to watch it again. But if I remember right, it kind of opens and they're already walking on the moors. And they're yeah. just traveling, you know. There's no. It's not like they go into a particular region for anything. No. It's it's just two Americans away from home who stumble into something. Yeah, it is. You it's, know, no, they haven't done anything. They're not bad. They're not. Yeah. You know, they didn't break into horror, horror films. You have in a lot of horror films, you normally have characters who are like bad people who have some reason that you'd want them, you know, that they, oh, I need to redeem myself because there's, you know, yeah. quite a lot of films based on that. Or at least you have one by... Apart from the villagers who don't really help them out, there's not really any bad people in this film. They're just all in very sad... Even the people that killed, they're just killed for no, just no reason. It's just standard it's people. It purely is the nature of the wolf that is just... It just wants to eat and feast and kill. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so the whole film is just a big sad loss and uh yeah but still the uh whole film is also just worth it for bad moon rising yeah yeah perfectly suited <laughs> right uh let's go into bobby's final one no i've got i've got two left oh i've got number four and number five. Oh, was that your number three with jaws yeah jaws from the number three. Ah, okay <laughs> as you can see the maths here isn't particularly great. <laughs> I'm now. No, yeah, you've really, done on. My, have I done on my five? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you've really confused yourself. I'll, I'll tell you my four. Yeah, you and tell then me your four. Check if we'll there's a number back. five. <laughs> yeah, maybe um, I have. So my number four is from A Nightmare on Elm Street Three: Dream Warriors, which was 1987, um, and directed by Chuck Russell. And this is um, this is where I think the double-edged sword with the Nightmare on Elm Street is. So I think this is the second best Nightmare on Elm Street. It sets up a lot of the kind of, a bit of the dark humour, a lot of the imagination with the dream world. But then after they start to take it a bit too, you know, it gets a bit too comedy and a bit too cringe for me. Um, (laughs) But this film, the character in particular for me is uh, is Taryn and it's portrayed by uh, Jennifer Rubin who uh, she was originally um, kind of a model, I think. And then she got into acting and she yep. kind of, she's been in quite a few things. Um, I never realized that she was Edie Sedgwick, Sed- Sedgwick in Oliver Stone's The Doors. I think she has like a small part in that. Okay, yeah. Um, but I think this was one of her first films. And the thing that she is, she's quite a sad character for me, Taryn. Because obviously, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 opens up, great opening yeah. where, you know, a, um, What's her name? Is it Christy? I believe. I haven't watched this one for a while. Yeah, I haven't watched that one for a while. So yeah. I can't. I can't. Agree. It sounds familiar, <laughs> but there's a lot, probably a lot of Christies out there. There probably is, man. But well, our our our, uh, our female protagonist, we'll call her that because <laughs> that's what she is. Um, she she you know she's fighting Freddy in a mirror. She's having these dreams, and she ends up self harming 
well, Freddie slashes her and her parents or her mum particularly thinks that she's self self harming. So yeah. she admits her to like um, to a mental hospital. And obviously we have Lawrence Fishburne in there as an orderly. Um, uh, Heather Langenkamp comes back as Returned, Nancy. Yeah. Um, and you get kind of all these troubled youths. So I just said troubled youths. Troubled <laughs> youths. <laughs> like, I'm, like I'm a 40-year-old, like... <laughs> A youth worker. These <laughs> damn youths. Those damn youths. You have these young people. <laughs> and they, um, so you have, um, you have the kind of kid who's into D&D and kind of, you know, the nerdy kid. I think you have Joey, who's, who's a, who's a mute. You have, um, the, I think his name's Philip, who makes, who makes the dolls, that kind of stuff. That's an amazing kill as well. You know, where he cuts his wrists open and he uses him as a doll and throws him off the roof that's amazing but you have all of these different characters and all from kind of troubled backgrounds and then you have taryn um and she's kind of like you know she's a recovering drug addict and she's very kind of low self-esteem low self-image that kind of stuff i think there's there's hints to her possibly making suicide attempts and having a real kind of like rough upbringing Mm. yeah and there's also just in in like a passing comment it, it it implies that she's sexually abused by some of the orderlies there for drugs mm. because one of them saying you know basically you know to paraphrase like come into the cupboard with me have sex and i like, give you drugs and she's like no i don't want to that yeah. kind of stuff this to sound, paraphrase this yeah, sound, yeah this, for a, for a nightmare on elm street film yeah i like, yeah this is understate like but it's i well forgot that yeah this sounds very dark for a even for a nightmare on elm street this is yeah, very dark like it it's is. normally light and playful in a yeah, way but well, the first three won't uh, but i think this is why it's the double-edged sword yeah because after it gets a bit oh it we can do anything the dream, yeah. Yeah, dream sequences um, a lot <laughs> but it's um and it's quite it's, it's i don't know she it just feels very sad for me her as a character um and then there's that part where you know nancy comes in and she's she's uh she's saying yeah this guy you know freddy krueger's there um you've already had uh philip coming off the off the roof they yeah. think he's a suicide jumper and then they have the one who's watching tv and freddy krueger's like welcome to prime time bitch <laughs> and pulls into the tv which is great so those deaths have already occurred i think but then they're like well nancy says about going into the dream world and fighting him and she says about, you know, in our dreams, we can do anything that we want. We're kind of in control of this. Yeah. You have the kid who's in the wheelchair who who stands up. You have <laughs> Kincaid, who is, who's such a chad. Yeah. And, and I love that in his dream, he's just strong. Yeah. But he's not like, he's not super strong, I don't think. He just like bends a chair. <laughs> it really, yeah, the, yeah. It, is, it really is the best. I, I think it's the best of the sequels. Yeah, de- easy. And then Taryn, you know, in, and I've, I've written the quote. She, you know, when they took, when the camera turns to her before she's got, you know, she's, she's clearly got, you know, the low self-esteem. She's not taking care of herself. You know, her hair's a bit messy, that kind of stuff. When it turns back round to her, she's wearing like a, like a cut off leather jacket with like spikes. And she's got like a massive, like two foot mohawk. (laughs) And she, and she goes, in my dreams, I'm beautiful. And then she goes, and bad and she flips out two switch plates <laughs> and it's just so badass and it's so cool and then you know so they've done this kind of introduction of them in the dream world and how these people really want to be i think that's the interesting thing yeah you have the reality of these people who are i mean not so much for the mute and the kid in the wheelchair but for the rest of the characters who are almost held back by something 
And for Taryn, yeah. I think she's held back by her upbringing, the drug abuse, that kind of stuff. That is what made that as a sequel worth a bit. Because not only did it show the potential of what this idea, like what A Nightmare on Elm Street with Freddy in the Dream World could actually give you as a film, but it also it linked it into the characters. Yeah. The character does very much. It's one of the few... Because I wouldn't say that Nightmare on Elm Street's one that like has the best sequels in the world. No, um, they, you know they're quite up and down. All yeah, over they can't. But um, they do really link into those characters and bring them back. And I'd say it's one of the few that really does that, where it actually thinks, and of that era as well, where it actually thinks, hey, character is important yeah. to build this world. And you have, you know, you have the you have the the characters in the real world, what they want to be in this dream world and how they really see themselves or how they want to see themselves. And then you have Freddy still exploiting the humanity in them by exploiting the fears. So, you know, the, the wheelchair kid, I can't never remember his name, but you know, he's, he's blasting Freddy with lightning and he's like, I am the wizard master. (laughs) And then, and then the wheelchair comes but he destroys the wheelchair and Freddy Krueger grabs him and goes, I don't believe in fairy tales, kid and kills him. Amazing. I love it. But with Taryn's death, she enters into this dream world and then it becomes like this really dark, sordid alley. And it's clearly somewhere from her, from her past. You know, it's, it's gritty and it's grim. And then Freddy Krueger comes out and she, she knife fights Freddy Krueger. That's how badass she is. She starts (laughs) knife fighting him. And she she stabs him, I think, and he's like, oh. and um, and then he, you know, he, uh, oh yeah, she says, okay, asshole, let's dance. Flips the <laughs> knives out, and they have this little knife fight. But then, um, Freddy Krueger exploits that fear in her, and this scene still kind of makes me cringe a bit because it's so grim. But his claws, you know, on on his hand, and his fingers turn into needles. With uh, this yeah, like yeah, blue yeah. liquid, oh, yeah, so grim. Yeah, and then you see like the the <laughs> injection sites on her on her arms, you know, clearly from doing drugs. drugs. Yeah. They turn into like little mouths or something, and they're like, mm. like, and it's and they're like waiting for it, and it's so grim. And she becomes so powerless. And then he, you know, he puts them in, and he says, "Well, before I, he says, let's get high, you know." Yeah. And then he sticks them in, and he st- just kill kills her. And then he goes. Ooh. What a rush. Yeah. And it's, for me, it's just so, it feels so, yeah, yeah, it just feels so sad. She's mm. such a sympathetic character. And the way in which, um, you know, Freddy Krueger just exploits these fears is oh, yeah. great. Yeah, it, it, it really does take advantage of, you know, the reality and the nightmare in that one. Yeah. But it also, it takes that, the great thing about it is the visuals that they really take their nightmares to the strange places that anyone's nightmares yeah. or dreams can go to it it really is it's like parts of their reality twisted into this fever dream and it yeah. is it is perfect and and that whole the mouths and it's just those little touches that just make it like none of the other ones did it as well as that and if no. they were gonna make more nightmare on elm street i'd like to see them start thinking back towards that yeah. as an example of how you could not have to copy the original film but do it in this weird, especially it, nowadays yeah. with the special effects. No one has taken that chance to really get crazy with Freddy. Yeah. But still needs to be grounded in character. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's, I think some of the later ones, you know, while some of the deaths are, are, are really quite, quite cool. Like the one where the woman, you know, the workout lass turns into the burgundy. You know, oh, crushes yeah. a really cool death. <laughs> but it doesn't quite have that imagery, you know, no. and just quite quite that fear 
you know, and it's a, a little bit body horror with the mouths on her arm, and mm, but that links to the character, that links to who they've set up. Yeah, and it know. shows that Freddy can go any way. Like, yeah, he can basically the horror of any other film could literally be brought into his film if you've got the right character where it makes sense. If you've given them a backstory and actually developed it, yeah. If you haven't developed the cancer, the cancer, <laughs> the character, yeah, uh, that's where it all just falls flat. You know, what I mean? in a lot of the sequels, they do do some crazy ones. There's the one where Johnny Depp returns on the TV screen. Yeah, this is your brain on drugs. Yeah, in, yeah, and and then the, those those sequences are cool. The characters aren't built up enough that you give a crap. No. So therefore, and you don't know enough about, they've had maybe a passing comment on, oh, they did this in their past. Blah, yeah. Blah, blah. And then that comes back and thing. But we didn't actually get to know that character. So why should I really care? Yeah. Like a, a, a kill of Freddy Krueger is that everybody loves, but I absolutely hate with a passion. And I think is, is dog shit is, you know, the comic book kill. Where so somebody I can't remember which one it is. It's maybe six or five or something like that. Yeah. And there's a kid. There's a guy who loves comic books, and he's supposed to look out for. Because I thought that was. Sleeping. I thought there's the same one where he comes on the TV screen. Because that one very. I much think, pay, that plays into pop culture a lot in that. I film. think the the the, the uh, there's a film between them, or the okay. one film and then the other film. And this, Need you know, watch. this dude. Yeah, <laughs> this, this dude loves comic books. He goes into a comic book and he becomes like. He's drawn his own character. He's got these two guns, and he shoots Freddy Krueger, and then Freddy Krueger comes back as Super Freddy, and it's like he's taking it too. F- it's just, yeah, it's just dog shit. You know, a lot of people love that. The only thing I, I don't like really about like it, I never no. really liked it when Freddy becomes something. Like I liked Freddy kind of. I liked it when he changed, like like with the yeah. needles you said. But I don't like it when he completely transformed com- into something completely like mind, like mindless or too. The humor did kind of kill it a bit. Yeah, the humor killed it. You, you have, you have. Freddy's always had a little bit of sick humor. And in this, he's 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 cracking puns, but he cracks puns in all of them, and they're quite yeah. gruesome. Like when, um, you know, like in the second one where he he sees Jesse, and he's like, you know, you've got the body, I've got the brains. But then what he does is he cuts his his skull open, yeah. and he gets his brain out. You know, that's that's quite funny, but it's also really fucking grim. Yeah. But yeah, I just think the later ones just lose it. But yeah. for me, Taryn's death is, it's just stuck with me. And she, she was such like a likable character. She wasn't mm. a main character. She no. was that supporting cast. And you kind of, you kind e- of knew. Even that in that one, die. even Nancy's a supporting character. Now. Yeah. And I actually, this is, this is how I, I don't, I haven't rewatched them in a long time. I used to watch them a lot. Yeah. Um, but I didn't. I actually forgot that Nancy Nancy dies in that one. Yeah, she does. And, and I I forgot that. But although I've also I also saw like a lot of people saying, and I think I remember thinking this that Nancy feels like quite a different character maybe than the way she was in the. She's a little. You bit. know, she's there's a little like she doesn't quite feel like that final girl. But then she's not. A she's not. Girl. But the um, and going back to kind of what you said about Halloween Five, in four in three they kill Nancy, in four they kill the people who are left over of the dream warriors. And then it just, you know, it just seems like they set up these cool characters because the dream warriors themselves are really cool, but you set them up and then you kill them. There's no, yeah, there's nothing like that. I I think the, some of the best horror films, if they're going to make sequels are the ones where they've just continued that character's arc. Yeah. And not just written it off as, Oh, no, we're not going to use that. Let's come up with our own ideas, but I guess we have to establish that those characters are gone now, so they, yeah. they can't do anything to our universe. <laughs> yeah, um, and it, yeah, that is. For it me, just always felt like lazy. lazy yeah, same writing. here, man. Same here. Um, do you have a number five? Have you found? No, I have done. I have done my whole list because, and I can tell you where the problem happened. Okay, 
uh, it should have been that you did your four after we did yours because my four was yours and we crossed ah, over. Yeah, okay. So you should have done your four and then after that, I should have done my five. Ah. Then it would have been your five. So we crossed five. So mine is done. Scream 2, The Mist, uh, Halloween 5, and Jaws, followed by A Werewolf in London. So uh, yeah. let's go I to can't. your number five. <laughs> Neither of us could do like basic maths. No, I quite no, like that. Yeah. Um, Too bad I'm a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my number five, um, and this was the character that actually originally made me want to make this kind of episode because i know when we were putting together episodes you know we were like oh let's do this let's do this and then we came up with the idea of doing it in memoriam and obviously it's got to be kind of like a feature that we do going forward yeah um but this is friday the 13th 2009 um and it's directed by uh marcus nispel who yep. did you know texas chainsaw massacre 2003 okay and I, I i can't remember what he did the year after but it was another kind of Rel- it was another either reboot or kind of relatively well-known film. Can't remember what it was. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I feel like I know where you're going because there's one character in that film that I always thought was very undeserving and probably the best character. But let's find so out. Let's see where you go with this. So for me, it was Chewie, played by Aaron Yu. Yes. Yeah. That who. Yeah. That's who you're thinking, man. I can feel it right now, and I remember us watching yeah. this film together. Because we did, we watched, um, we oh, watched it. We watched it. It was a pirate comedy. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was. It was an amazing comedy. But I do remember, like we both like we sat there together like, watching. Didn't we? That, we were like that was like that was uncomfortably brutal. Uncomfortably it was gruesome. it was unwelcome in a way. Yeah, and um, most of the lines he had, I was creasing up. Yeah, I genuinely liked. He was this actually like that character, that type of character, the stoner. The, the just there for humor yeah it falls flat in a lot of films it, yeah it's, he could be very hit and miss but it worked in that film in a film where a lot of things didn't work although i enjoyed that remake, yeah i like the film there's 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 some things about it that didn't work and including like the main characters not always being that likable yeah but he's not a protagonist but he comes across as more likable he and his friend and i can't remember lawrence lawrence those two characters, I would have rather been that they were the main so characters than the ones we get about the whole brother, sister, no, the sister missing. And, and you then know, they the do the guy. bait and switch where the Trent's yeah, girlfriend... Jared, Jared Pellet, 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 yeah, the act go- of um, yeah, Supernatural, Supernatural and uh, Danielle... Oh, I think hers is very close to Harris, but it's not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, those two... Uh, uh, Panabaker is this. Danielle Panabaker. Yeah. Those two are the mains... Although they do have a nice twist with Danielle Panabaker where she's the main that you expect. That's a very then, good I like unexpected. That. Yeah. But Fruit let's go back. So interestingly enough about Aaron Yu, um, he is one of the only people who has been killed by both Freddy and Jason. Because he oh, is really? in um he is in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Oh, he oh, is I the um yeah, I I didn't put two and two together. But he has a small part. He's the guy who does the blog and he's saying you know i can't sleep because somebody keeps coming to me oh, okay. it's him yeah and although that bit is really fucking weird because who put that video out yeah <laughs> it the, yeah so he has the the distinction of being one of only two no not one of only two people uh but one of the few people who has been killed by both, both. freddie and jason which is quite cool but yeah he's you know he's this stoner and he's got that kind of fun loving vibe mm. and the thing that i like about him is he's almost um, obviously he became he came first but you know um cabin in the woods yes that stoner character in there yeah i can't remember his name right now no. he you know they both have very similar vibes 
but they both really work as characters. They do, yeah. Not just because of, I mean, the writing, but because of the delivery. And I think Aaron Yu does does so well as Chewie. Like yeah. genuinely, like I've I've remembered this death since two thousand and nine. So eleven years ago, when we were sat in your front room watching this, <laughs> I've like remembered it because it, he was such a good character. Um, but you know, he's kind of like a fully, he's fully relatable as well. He seemed, I mean, he might, he's probably like, I think he's in his 40s now. But at the time, he probably would have been 30s, late 20s. And he actually feels like it. He actually feels like, oh, you're, you're, you're watching somebody who's like in their early 20s and just going away for a weekend yeah. and having, having fun. Um, and he kind of comes out the back of the car and that's how we first see him. You know, they're driving down. He gets out of like the boot <laughs> and then he goes, and, and this always made me laugh, but he goes and he buys like loads of snacks and condoms. <laughs> and then that guy's like, what are you doing? Because there's only one single girl who's coming. Yeah. The rest of it is my girlfriend and the boys. <laughs> and he's like, oh, um, yeah, it's for an experiment. <laughs> that always creeps me out. And the bit where, you know, they're playing uh, uh, beer pong and he, you know, him and Lawrence against Trent and the, the other lass, Brie, I think her name is. Mm. And, you know, Lawrence and Chewie win. But then, and he's like, you have to drink out of my shoe. <laughs> and the shoe's all horrible and gross. And the guy's like, no, you know, I'm not doing it. Trent's like, I'm not doing it. Bree's like, I'm not doing it. So Chewie's like, fuck it, I'll do it. And he gives like a speech yeah. and he mentions felching and, like, and all that stuff. And he just drinks out of his boot. Which, and it just, it's just so good. Kind of thing that leads up to his death is, um, you know, he breaks the chair. He's trying to impress Bree. He's, he's smoking loads of weed and he's like joking about cheating on one of his bongs with some, another bong, that kind of thing. Yeah. And he lights the shot on fire. He goes up to Brie and he's he, he gives like a little short speech. She blows the thing out, puts it to his lips and it burns his lips. He goes back, falls over the chair. He breaks the chair and Trent's like, oh, that's my dad's family heirloom. Yeah. You know, and then he's like, you got to go fix it. Yeah, so Trent's a real dick. Trent, Trent's, a, Trent's a dick. But for the Trent is the same actor and same character in Transformers, which is another Michael Bay produced <laughs> film. So whether that means that Transformers takes place in the same world <laughs> as, you know. Get ready for Jason Voorhees versus... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, um, and then when he goes to the tool shed, he kind of says, um, you won't be disappointed. They don't call me the wood wizard because I masturbate a lot. Which <laughs> is just so funny. <laughs> and then he gets it, in there. It's very immature humour, but it, it's but enjoyable. It's he, and it he, lands it. He, he yeah, he lands play, it. Yeah, he, he does what the actor does really play off that character. And then he goes into the, you know, he goes into the tool shed and he thought it was going to be a shed, but it's actually like a massive warehouse because Trent's fucking loaded. And he yeah. starts playing with a hockey stick. He breaks the light and you see the light swinging. You see Jason behind him. And he, he thinks Jason's like somebody having a joke. I think he's probably one of the only people in the franchise who's ever tried to like reason with Jason. Yeah. Because he's like, oh, complete new outfit. Have the hockey stick. And then Jason attacks him. He gets a screwdriver to try and defend himself. And then it just gets slowly pushed into his neck. And it's, it is, it, well, at least it felt really slow. Yeah, it is. It's probably and a good, like, 15, it, 20 seconds. Like, it's a great special effect because it, it, you see it just slide in as a practical effect as yeah. well. It's, it's really reminded me kind of Kevin Bacon's back in the first Friday the yeah. 13th with the arrow going through, the, yeah. you know, which was just amazing. But this is just, oh, it's, it, just it's so brutal. It's brutal and it's kind of like... Uh, 
you know, it, it just feels. It's the icky fact that it's watch. like face, and you're like seeing his face, and you're seeing it go in. And I don't know why. For me, there was always something about the neck. They're yeah. just like. Well, you don't uh, like. You, you're worried your neck's going to get slashed. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's Bringing just so grim. My weakness. <laughs> and I watched. Um, there's a deleted scene where he had an alternative death, where um, it's very similar. But I think Jason gets like a buzz, or, or there's a buzz, or any kind of. He pushes him onto it and he, he chops off like the top half of his head. And oh. that doesn't quite have the same effect as the screwdriver into yeah. the throat because you can feel him struggle, you know? A lot of the times in um, in horror films, deaths can be quick. Yeah. You know? You can, Especially you go, with Jason. Yeah. yeah. They're normally, you know, slice, rab, sleeping yeah. bag against a tree. Something you know? <laughs> going into your eye. You know, yeah. you're dying quite instantly. But then the, it's just such a masterfully done kill. And it's it kind of feels like it's going to cut off at any time. And it's going to be an off-screen death. But, but it just my lets boy, you yeah. feel the full agony that he's yeah. in. And my and... boy Chewie just dies. Yeah, I, I remember. It was definitely, that was one thing that stood out about that. That moment, I felt uneasy. I felt really sorry for the character. Yeah. And I just thought that would be such a horrible way to die. There's nothing quick about it. And I think maybe that's why, because Jason's death quite often are really quick. Yeah. You kind of really did feel for that character. And it definitely is the worst death in the film. Yeah, there's a lot. And I think that film, say what you want about it. You know, it, some things are great, some things aren't. A lot of the deaths are actually quite cool. There are so there are some good deaths and and some that are quite uh, like quick as I, as I said earlier about Daniel Panabaker's character who is yeah. almost the the main character after Jared she Polanski she's gets, the main girl she just suddenly gets she just gets snatched and yeah, slashed she just suddenly gets sliced but because you think that she's like the final girl you're like she's oh, got to get through yeah like, that, 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 that really shocking. is like yeah like wow um, but yeah the, the, I will say that the the thing that that just annoyed me about that one was the fact. So let's think about the game on the on the video game. Yeah, shout out. You have to the game. this, uh, which is amazing, um, <laughs> but you have this point where you can jump anywhere on the map, and to me, that pretty much symbolises what Jason like is in that remake. Yeah, he just pops up and appears when he was like a completely different place, and it's literally it's that actual scene that kind of like wait a second, wasn't he just like on the roof and now yeah. he's over? There's a seat, he's on the roof and, the and then house, he's in the bathroom and then suddenly he's and there and, with yeah. Chewie and then he's back with. Like we see with you know Lawrence and like it's like, it, what? like what, how how is he doing this? Yeah, I really like Derek Mears Jason. I oh, really yeah. like the Jason himself. Is you know he's like a survivalist and he's very like brutal. Like with Lawrence, you know he gets the axe thrown in his yeah. back. I don't know why, but I seem to love like in horror films where they throw stuff to kill people. Yeah. Like I, if I'm ever in a horror film, that's how I want to die. Like <laughs> throw something at me. Pinned up against the wall by yeah. a, a giant axe. Yeah, but. And there's a lot of cool deaths like that, you know. He's he, great. He's trying to he's trying to bait people out to come and save Lawrence, that kind of thing. But there is this. It just seems like the editing never is a lot of inconsistencies. Yeah, that's what I mean. I never got it with any other of the Friday the Thirteenth. Maybe because they happen, they don't happen so quick and fast. That is kind of a where several happen quite yeah. quick and fast. You know what I mean? So you do get a bit like, how is he getting? You know, where is he? What is he doing? Yeah. Why would Jason ever keep someone alive? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it gets explained, but um, it's still, yeah, it, it was just those little inconsistencies that always sometimes tend, they do tend to annoy me though. Those little inconsistencies. I remember it? when but we it watched it. But it is horror films. And as much as we do love them, not all of them are made to a hugely high standard. Yeah. They are just there to be 
enjoyed. a good date night, a good yeah. uh, out cinema. A couple of people have died. You've enjoyed it. It's been. It is what it is, and yeah. that's kind of what the remake was. It wasn't reinventing the wheel. Um, the film was interesting. It, they kind of combined ideas from I, the first I really three. That. I thought that was, was really good. good. Um, and I w- yeah, it would have been interesting to see where it ha- would have gone if they'd made another one. Um, but yeah, rip. That's what we uh, get. Yeah. As with a lot of those remakes, sadly, a lot of them didn't lead in. The, even, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre got like a, a prequel yeah, kind of one. I liked it. Um, yeah. But, and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street got, didn't get anything either for no. its remake. Um, although even with the Texas Chainsaw, like that for more kind of, Although it had a similar style, it kind of still felt like we're rebooting the reboot again. You know, what I mean, yeah, we're, we're going to remake a, on a reboot with a reboot instead. And they seem to go from like, you know, rebooted Leatherface, really big and muscly. Yeah. Rebooted um, Michael Myers, really big and muscly. Rebooted Jason, really big and muscly. And yeah, and so yeah, with all pattern. of these remakes, it's like they're trying to find something, and it's like. I think a lot of the studios looked at it and go, it was good. It, it it worked well enough. It made a fairly enough money, but it's not quite what we hoped for. So yeah. let's try a different direction already instead of giving them a chance to go. Let's try and then, as else. we know, m- all of those franchises have been kind of up and down in franchise hell of like, yeah. can't get anywhere with it. And th- we pray for the day we get another Friday the 13th. Yeah, but it doesn't look like it's going anywhere soon. No. Uh, right. So... That was our picks. That was an interesting idea of both of us. We got a little yeah. bit lost along the way there well, that's what on we our do. journey. <laughs> um, so, uh, after this episode, we are doing our first retrospective. Uh, we are looking at Halloween franchise. Now, this will just be the Halloween franchise of the original continuity, although we are including the recent film because that links back to the original but we're not doing the Rob Zombie film because in the future we'd quite like to go into Rob Zombie's back catalogue, so we thought we'd focus on the Halloween remakes then. Yeah, the kind of... The, the Mustafa Akkad kind of ones, the ones that he's kind of produced. Yes. That kind of era of them, including the original John Carpenter and... Because there are a million timelines in Halloween. Yeah, too many. So <laughs> many timelines. Um, it's almost as convoluted now as X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> almost. <laughs> Um, so over to Bobby for the, uh, shout outs. Yeah. So, um, obviously if you've enjoyed today's episode, um, if you've got any characters that you didn't want to see die, um, or if you've got any comments or about the people that we've picked, you know, come and come and say hello and come and let us know. We are on Twitter, um, CMTH podcast. Uh, yeah. Come and say hello. Uh, big shout out to Dan Marty for producing this continuing to make us sound professional and good (laughs) (laughs) and um we will see you in two weeks time bye bye